this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Next Tsunami podcast. This weekend, we are offering five conversations from Episode 12, our review of the ICER draft evidence report on resmedarome and abutacolic acid. And from the vault, we have conversation 16.1 from Season 3, in which Chris Estes, who was then the lead modeler for the CDA Foundation, joined Jorn Schottenberg, Louise Campbell, guest Alina Allen, and me to discuss some of the challenges in building a model for a disease with a long progression path and measurable levels of spontaneous regression. It's an issue that arose during the ICER discussion, but with a very different spin, so you'll probably want to listen to all of this to get a feel for how it hangs together. Veronica Miller starts this conversation with a comment similar to much of what we discussed in the Season 4, Episode 11. She contrasts her working group that morning, which focused on the amazing insights we can garner from AI assessment of biopsy slides, with the imprecision of the drugs we have today, the frontline diagnostics, and what we do in clinical trials to evaluate them. The net result is that we lose power at every stage of analysis and measure response at a point in time instead of measuring patient trajectories. As she says, and I quote, it hurts to see that we are not applying the right diagnostic, end quote, in the context of drug trials, even if we can discuss them in scientific papers. This takes me back to my least favorite sentence in the entire document, which was, and I quote again, the exact prevalence of NASH is uncertain since diagnosis requires liver biopsy and many patients with NAFLD did not undergo biopsy, end quote. The NASH tsunami team are all big fans of properly used biopsy and analysis, but not this way. Veronica agrees saying, and I quote again, picture tells a thousand words, but we've picked three or four words to try to tell the whole story. Last quote of this conversation. From here, the group discusses some of the challenges in the documents and data sets and moves to a payoff question about the impact of ICER reports at the end of the trial and publications. The panel notes that ICER is fundamentally a private report with no impact on how the drug is approved, but Hannah Malushka notes that while ICER sometimes issues updates, it's uncommon to do so. She suggests that this trial provides no guidance on how we determine which patients are F2 or F3, which will provide a real challenge for payers trying to determine the economic impacts of the drugs. While ICER is a private organization, its recommendations carry weight with those assessing the value and pricing of new medications. This report will leave a significant footprint in commercial space, so just sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the dialogue on our LinkedIn discussion group. Veronica Miller. I spent this morning talking. We had a working group call. It was all about digital pathology and artificial intelligence, machine learning, to get at the nuances of what actually happens in the liver. This is such such an amazing disease in terms of, well, the liver is such an amazing organ, and there's so much that happens. And having spent the morning kind of in all of this, the glory of, of these nuances and huge amounts of images and information that's coming out of liver biopsies, and then to have, unfortunately, we're still this thing where we have this very blunt tool, a little bit of increase or decrease in fibrosis and a little bit of increase or decrease in NASH, some scores. And the imprecision of that tool in itself is so frustrating, right? Because this is not how we should be measuring the effect of the drug because it's just too blunt. We lose power at every single stage, including the way the trials are set up as responder-driven analysis because we simply can't really look at individual patient trajectories as, you know, like, for example, change in fibrosis of time because you can only do one biopsy at the beginning and one at the end. So we're so limited by what we can actually report in terms of outcomes that are approvable. I mean, we can, of course, report in the scientific literature about, about all the other biomarkers, but there's so much else that's going on here. And here, this whole report is based on a little bit of change in fibrosis and a little bit of improvement or not in NASH. So that itself is so, it hurts. It just hurts to see that this is what happens 
happens when we are not applying the right diagnostic markers and tools, which of course we need to go through the process and have them validated. But I think in a couple of years, we'll be in a totally different data zone when it comes to this. And it won't be 20% of people responding. We'll have much, much more quantitative data uh, to really look at both the safety and the efficacy uh, of the drugs. So Veronica, you went back to my single least favorite sentence in this document, which was not the first two sentences I noted, but this one I will read, which is the exact prevalence of NASH is uncertain since diagnosis requires liver biopsy and many patients with NAFL do not undergo biopsy. Whereas the other one was my, okay, this roller coaster just took off too fast moment. That was my, holy smokes, there are no brakes on this thing and, and it's going in the water. For all the reasons you're saying, and by the way, we do a lot of stuff on this podcast where people, we do uh, not a lot of stuff, but a decent amount of stuff where we talk about AI and what amazing things we can learn through AI these days. So it's not that I'm anti-biopsy, but I'm certainly not a fan of that statement. I couldn't agree with you more. It's not bad. It's just very ineffective because it's just so blunt. It doesn't give us, at least individual pathologists, red biopsy in front of a microscope gives us, you know, a picture tells a thousand words, but we've picked three or four words to try and tell the whole story. <laughs> can, I, can I quote you on that? That's fantastic. That's, yeah. that's Thank you. Let me do this. We're heading towards the bottom of our hour. We've got more people in this audience than we have in this episode. If anybody has a question that you want to drop in, I think we gave you instructions on how to do that. We'll, we'll take a minute and we'll wait. And while we're doing that, I will let anybody who wants to riff about anything we've not covered yet that you think is worth mentioning. Louise Campbell. I'm going to bring in something that I thought was interesting. They were keen to say that nobody discusses fibrosis stage transitions. We purely discuss that we have met the end requirements of the study. And in fact, very few trials say how many people regress by one stage, two stages or three stages. And actually, that might be important information. Certainly, if you have a drug that progresses a certain population within that trial, like they did recommend that the Hispanics were very well represented with about 21% throughout the studies. But if they all regressed three stages, and so there was bits, I think, that they dropped in for further consideration when other clinical trials are formulating their releases as to what were the stage increases. I think the other one that struck me was the lack of long-term data, but then these are trials with no long-term data. A bit of colic acid can provide that in a PBC setting, but I was taken back to when Roche were going to release Pegasus and Interferon. They did a massive worldwide study of open access to anybody. Now, this study haunted me around the world because when I went to work in Australia, I was still doing this study several years after I'd done it in the UK and marrying up data. But there were five or 6,000 people given access to hepatitis C treatment on the Pegasus open access. So that generated mass data very quickly. And I wonder whether this is pushing people to consider that open access. I suppose Novo Nordisk have it at the moment with Azempic and Wegovy being given access, free access basically to the NHS if your BMI is over 35. So they're going to generate an awful lot of data and things. So there were little bits I thought were suggestive. So Louise, can I step back to your first point for just a sec? You aren't, help me with this. I think part of the reason that we weren't looking at more than one level improvements is that these aren't particularly efficacious drugs. Okay. I'm, I'm thinking, is it, Jorn, was it the Afroxifirm in 2A where they took a look at how often they got a two-level decline? Jorn Schattenberg. Yeah, but then you got to remember we're talking about a four-stage, four-tire system where we're enrolling patients in the tires three and two. 
So to get a two right. decrease, uh, you you got to go all in for the F2s and, and uh, you got to go down to F1, which again, this is not a linear regression of numbers. This is an experimental decrease of the amount of fibrosis tissue. And Veronica has been detailing the AI tools we're using. So this is a lot of fibrosis that needs to be moved. Therefore, uh, there, we don't see a lot of two-stage improvement. And it depends on the activity and the decrease the stage of the disease. I, I agree with that. I do. I, if I recall correctly, however, they did report a number on that in a fruxifermin in, in one of the earlier stages. And you do get that every once in a while in the larger trials where you have enough F3 to move down to F1. In general, these numbers back the one-stage fibrosis regression, and they kind of go the same way. It's just at a much lower level. And then, of course, the number gets smaller, so you lose a little bit of the certainty around those smaller numbers. Well, I guess my question to people that have been dealt more with these ISA reports is, I mean, uh, I mentioned this in the beginning. These are surrogate endpoints reasonably likely to predict outcome. Of course, it's crucial that we continue these patients in clinical trials and, of course, collect those clinical outcomes, even if there's going to be dropout over time and some dilution for people, you know, moving or for whatever reason. I guess the question is, how how are these reports then revisited by the time the trials read out and that information that's been collected along the road and the journey of these clinical trials? Uh, will that impact these results and to what extent? You know, that's a good question. And I have to admit, I don't quite know know how this works. I, for example, was so shocked that they even would put out a report without a peer-reviewed publication to base, to have a look at the data with. So I don't know, maybe Roger or Hannah or Jeff, you know more about how the the actual impact of this over time. It's just that once a report like this is out, it's it's hard. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? That's a good point. You can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? And that's why you have to put it into the relation and data that's available. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't have an answer to Veronica's question that I trust. Hannah, if either you or Jeff do, let's share it. And if not, let's go to final questions, wrap up. We're about an hour in. Jeff McIntyre. I would defer to Hannah on this with more experience on this, but my understanding is that this is much more of a pricing consideration. You know, certainly it, it may play or may be a consideration in terms of approval. If anything, it may have the evaluations of the studies in there may show a little bit of insight into how non-industry folks or how, even though ISER isn't regulatory or government agency technically, and they're in that kind of weird space about how they view the data data about how they engage with the data as well. Yeah. So I just wanted to make sure, I mean, I, sir, this report will not affect how the FDA approves the drug or not. That has absolutely no, that's not what I was trying to say. So FDA does their own review of the data that they get and they get the whole data package. But my question about ICER was really, once they put out a report like this, what happens afterwards? I, I don't know what the normal ICER procedure is. That is where I was hoping other you or Hannah might have some. Hannah, do you have any information on how ICER normally operates and what they would do? Hannah Mamushka. They have issued updates in the past. I think the question is going to be, are they going to update it for what population? Because what I think is unclear in this report, and I think is also going to be unclear, well, it'll be interesting to see what FDA says, but who are the patients who are actually going to be eligible? How are we going to find them? And then how are particularly commercial payers, also Medicare, what tools are they going to use in order to figure out who are the F2, F3 patients? Because we currently, we don't look for those patients right now. And so from a commercial perspective, that could be a very small patient population, which you could see Madrigal could use this report to try to drive up the price of the drug. That's certainly something that I think has been talked about quite a bit in investor circles. I don't know anything about what they're actually going to do for pricing. The bigger the population is, the sort of the wider the gate, the expectation is that it's going to go down. But I don't think the report really leads to that. So I would expect that ICER would release an update, but I 
I have no idea when they would do that based on what data. Because NICE in the UK, Louise, as you mentioned, NICE is a more official and their recommendations are much more binding, same as the HDAs in other countries in Europe. These are not binding recommendations in any sense. This is just basically their opinion. ICER is just a private group. They have a very fancy title <laughs> and they've given themselves a lot of clout, but they're just a private group that makes analysis. And now, back to Roger. We hope you enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please put them in the review section of the page in which you downloaded this conversation or send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We'll be back next week to preview May's second annual Innovations in NAFL Care Conference with co-hosts Jorn Schottenberg, who's a regular here, as you know, and Jeff Lazarus, who's not. Until then, stay safe, surf on, and we'll see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now.